My name is Mark Stenson. I had another brush with death and another trip out of my body a few months after the vehicle accident. I was taking medication at the time for a possible ulcer disease. Ulcers were common in my family. I used to hang out with a guy who was also on medication for another reason. However, I was in the restroom after my friend had returned after a visit. When it was time for my medication, I reached down, got my tablets, and swallowed them. The trouble was that these weren't my tablets. They belonged to a friend. He'd left a couple on the bathroom counter. They looked so much like my own that I didn't notice that they weren't. I exited the bathroom and continued down the corridor, not knowing what I had done. I started to feel odd. My heart began to pound after a while. I walked over to the couch to sit, but before I got there I broke out in a cold sweat. Perspiration just poured out of my pores, and I was drenched. My heart began to race as I sat on the edge of the couch, and breathing became increasingly difficult. The intensity of my heartbeat caused my chest to bulge. I sagged back into the couch and rested, hoping to decrease my heartbeat. I laid on my back, looking down at my chest, where my ribcage continued to swell with each heartbeat. Then my heart gave a huge push, and my ribcage seemed to rise three inches before freezing. That was the end of it. I had left. In California, I was no longer in my body. I was now hovering at ceiling level in the living room of my childhood home in Washington. I couldn't believe how much serenity I had just being out of my body. The clarity of everything around me was like to waking up from a dream into reality. I had complete vision. The peace, calm, and joy I felt were indescribable. I wasn't really in heaven. No, I wasn't. It was the sense of freedom and joy that came from being free of a body that was constantly fighting to get its way. It's remarkable how much we put up with just being alive. The colors I saw were quite vibrant. My senses were really acute. I peered out the front door, across the street, and over to the house next door. The sunshine glistened like liquid gold in beautiful glory. I was enjoying this beautiful experience without thinking about how I got there. Then I started thinking about how I got there. Let's see, the last thing I recall is being in my California home. And, well, I'd been lying on the couch with something wrong with my heart. Oh my goodness, now I remember. My heart had ceased with one last heave, and now I've arrived. When I mulled this over in my mind, my overpowering awe gave way to a sense of loss. Well, I assumed I was dead, but my anguish was not about my death. It was about the fact that my mother, sister, or brother were about to return home and discover my body. I wanted terribly for them not be subjected to the shock of that. This contemplation was interrupted by the sight of two entities speaking in the distance and the subject of their conversation was me. What was to become of me now? I became aware of a spiritual dimension opening up beneath me. I was taken aback to see what appeared to be an entrance to hell. I could see the fires of hell far below me, but I avoided staring at them directly. What am I doing? What exactly is going on? I was perplexed. I appeared to be poised between heaven and hell, yet conscious of earth and aware that my eternal fate was being decided. Looking up, I saw a highway made of pure, translucent gold in front of me. I knew it led all the way to God's throne. Even the possibility of hell below me, and the promise of paradise above me couldn't take my mind off the concern that my family would soon discover me dead. I was overwhelmed with guilt. I was determined to put things right. I didn't want them to go through it. I had no notion how to get back to my body or if I did, 
how I would get back in it, and then how I would bring it back to life. So there I was, stripped of my earthly body and crying out, Oh God, for the second time in front of God. That was all I could think of. I was in a situation I couldn't change, so I just fell down before God and cried out, Oh God! And then, whoosh! I took out into the air and found myself back in California, hovering above the roof of our apartment building. I could see clear through the roof to my body, which was laying face up on the couch. Suddenly, like a child sliding down a playground slide, I slid through the roof and into my body. My eyes popped open as I entered through the top of my skull. I lay there, completely stunned, remembering the calm and joy I had had, but more importantly, feeling grateful that my family would not discover me dead on the couch. I began to think about the two entities who had been debating my fate. They had to be angels or saints of some sort. Entities sent by the Lord, I reasoned. What on earth happened to me? While I laid there, I reflected. I arose from the couch and went into the bathroom to try to piece things together when I felt it was safe to get up and wander about. Was it my prescription that caused this? Why had it happened this time and not the others? There were a couple of pills left over from the ones I'd taken shortly before my heart started beating on the bathroom counter. When I looked closer, I realized they weren't my medications after all. These belonged to one of my friends. I eventually found out what had happened from a doctor. A chemically induced cardiac arrest had occurred. And bless the Lord, because of the type of medication, it had not harmed my heart. It had just come to a halt. So I was a dead person with a perfectly good heart for a while. All that was required was someone knowledgeable about reviving hearts, God. And now I was seriously considering death in the afterlife. At the age of twelve, I accepted Christ at Camp Cedar Crest in the San Bernardino Mountains. But by this time, I was about eighteen, and had strayed fairly far from God and what He wanted me to do. These experiences were unmistakably pointing to the need for me to return to God. The vehicle accident, my life flashing before my eyes, and now being suspended between heaven and hell, was I even still saved? In person with Jesus. That question, am I saved, became increasingly prominent in my mind. I'd had two close calls with death, and both times the question seemed to be whether or not I was rescued. I begged for and accepted the Lord into my life when I was twelve years old. Yet around the age of eighteen, my life did not appear to have any evidence that God was still present within me. In fact, I had grown to despise Christians. I thought and thought. In my mind, I replayed the car accident over and over, to the point where I began to suspect that I had genuinely died and was now in hell. That's true. I began to suspect that what appeared to be reality to me was only an illusion. My worry and fear of not being saved had become so intense that I had begun to lose contact with reality. I became so worried that I thought hearing the sound of a pin drop would send me over the edge. While I was nearing the end of my life, I was directing theater at a college in California. I had just finished directing the play, Revolt at the Portholes, when I received a job offer in North Dakota, near where I grew up. I reasoned that changing jobs, which would require me to leave L.A. and get away from everything, might be beneficial. I hurriedly grabbed some clothing and a few books into a suitcase and took off. I had no idea what inspired small book I had thrown into my suitcase until I got to North Dakota. My aunt and uncle took me in. My aunt worked at the hospital where the job opportunity existed, so she arranged the interview. I went, but I was not hired. I had assumed the job was fully set up. So there I was in North Dakota with nothing to do but sit with my thoughts, which were killing me. 
when I opened my suitcase, there found that little book called The ABC of Fasting. I had no notion what the term fasting meant. I grew up attending a Baptist church with my mother and a Lutheran church with my grandma. So, what exactly was fasting? I'd never heard of it before. Well, I read in the book that fasting is the best way to connect with God, I reasoned. And that is what I have to do, I concluded. I needed to communicate with God, or one of two things would happen. I was afraid that my concerns would either drive me insane or kill me outright, and I didn't believe this was an exaggeration. So it wasn't a question of choice for me. That was a question of life and death. I began my fast. I drank nothing except water. I determined that while I was fasting, I would read the entire Bible from beginning to end. I started at the beginning, with Genesis. I'd grown up going to church, but I didn't know the difference between the Old and New Testaments. So when I got to the part in Exodus where I had to sacrifice bulls and other animals to atone for my sins, I became very discouraged. I had no idea how I was going to procure a bull to offer for my sins, let alone what I was going to do with one once I got one. That exacerbated my despair and bewilderment. My thinking became incredibly clear after the third day of my fast. It was as if I had a super mind. My mind became so alert that I could recall events from my entire life with extraordinary clarity. The problem was that I could recall my misdeeds with greater clarity as well. I was increasingly afflicted, not by the spirit of conviction that comes from God, but by the spirit of condemnation and accusation that comes from the enemy. It was a really joyful experience at moments, as my spirit would leap with hope. But then it would turn into a living nightmare, as when I was lying in bed, faces would appear before me and accuse me of every vice I had ever committed, and even ones I hadn't committed, as long as I believed them. That's when I discovered one of Satan's axioms. If anything works, use it. Satan began telling me that I was the reincarnated Judas Iscariot, and that God had only permitted me to be reborn as me out of mercy, because I had been languishing in hell since I betrayed Christ in my previous incarnation as Judas. And now I was on my way back to hell for my most recent misdeeds. To be sure, I didn't have a solid Christian foundation to determine whether reincarnation was nonsense or not. I began blending every notion I'd ever heard with Christianity, assuming they were supposed to match, not realizing that a lot of it wasn't. Satan exploited all of these strange concepts to rattle my cage. He blamed me for World War I, World War II, and Vietnam. As I already stated, if he believes it would work, he will employ it. He has no qualms about doing such things. I must admit that I had a more difficult time fighting for my salvation than others, because our family had been connected with the occult for many years. As part of what was going on in my family, I made a contract with Satan when I was approximately 14 or 15 years old, and I had obtained what I had asked for in that arrangement. That made this conflict more difficult for me. Satan was telling me that I belonged to him, that there was no prospect of my going to paradise or receiving Jesus, and that all this fasting nonsense was futile. On the eighth day of my fast, I called my mother and expressed my anxiety that I would be unable to find, or pay, a bull to sacrifice for my sins. She inquired as to what I had been reading. I told her I had begun at the beginning of the Bible and had become frustrated when I discovered I needed to sacrifice a bull. Well, I discovered that this was bull. She tried to explain to me that I was in a different dispensation and that I should read the New Testament first since that was the section of the Bible that dealt with me. Okay, I said, I'll do that. I was still wondering, what is a dispensation? For all I know, it could have been some kind of duck. In any case, I began reading the New Testament. 
I began to read about how I didn't need a bull or a lamb since Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. When I read that I didn't have to find my own bull, and plus, I didn't need any more bull in my life. I was overjoyed. I was coping with everything I could handle at the moment, thinking I'd created World War II and everything. Then I began reading about something known as a Holy Spirit. What on earth is a Holy Spirit? In addition, the Bible says that when Jesus left, He told us that He would send back the Comforter. Man, what exactly is a Comforter? I'd like to know. I really need something to console me. I was thinking to myself. I was approaching the twelfth day of my fast. I was still waiting for my salvation on pins and needles. Most of the time I felt damned to hell. Yet I persisted in my pursuit of God. I began to discuss what I had been reading about the Holy Spirit while sitting in the kitchen at my aunt's house, with my uncle sitting nearby enjoying lunch on his lunch break from work. I was hoping we'd have a great talk and that, because my aunt was always so engaged with church, she'd be able to cast some light on the situation for me. So I opened up to them and told them about how I was reading in the Bible about something called the Holy Spirit, and how it says God gives us that when we become Christians, and that we acquire power to perform things I had never heard about in church before. I mean, it said that sick people would be healed and all sorts of other things. So there I sat at the kitchen table, expecting some fantastic wisdom and edifying from the mouth of my presumably seasoned Christian aunt. She started yelling at me. You keep that Holy Spirit stuff to yourself. That is the work of the devil. If you mess with that, you'll go insane into hell. That Holy Spirit nonsense is straight from hell. Would you believe me if I said I was in shock? Not minor shock, but major shock. I was very perplexed. This was my aunt, who was constantly involved with church ladies' groups and who always carried her Bible with her. I held a Bible in my hands that mentioned the Holy Spirit and getting authority from God. It stated that this was excellent and that it was part of our legacy. I began to question if we were reading from the same Bible, but she was in such an overwhelming wrath that I decided to just sit there and be quiet. The air became as thick as asphalt during the next two days. I was still fasting, which had already worried both my aunt and uncle. They were getting upset because I was getting caught up in this Holy Spirit nonsense. During the sixteenth day of my fast, my aunt handed me an ultimatum. Mom said I had to break the fast and leave all that Holy Spirit nonsense alone, or I'd have to return to California. This was not an option for me. I was still clinging to life and sanity, so I just told her I was going to start packing. So there I was, back in California, still fighting for my life. My fast entered its 18th day, then the 19th day, and finally the 20th day. I wanted to fast for 40 days like they do in the Bible. I guess I assumed it had to be 40 days to be considered a true fast. I assumed it had to be 40 days to acquire the answers you were seeking for. But lying there on the 20th day, I started to get minor twinges of hunger. I hadn't gone hungry in all those days. You will no longer be hungry after the second or third day. I felt it was time to break the fast. Thus, after considerable deliberation about whether or not to break the fast, I chose to do so by following the instructions in my ABC of Fasting book on how to break a fast, take it slowly and gently. After that time, I was only supposed to consume an ounce or two of orange juice. So I poured myself a tiny glass and sipped. Oh my goodness, that was the most potent flavor. Fasting and cleansing my body had enhanced my sense of taste and I couldn't get over how intense that orange juice tasted. So I blended it ten times with water. I sipped it again, and it was delicious even after being diluted so much. Then, as I stood in the kitchen sipping orange juice, I noticed a bag of marshmallows in the cupboard. 
I planned to eat one marshmallow with my orange drink. That appeared secure to me. It's pretty nice stuff. Orange juice and marshmallows aren't the best mix, but they're delicious. After I was finished, I lay on the couch and thought, Okay, God, I have done all I can. I am entrusting my soul and salvation to you. I closed my eyes and simply began to twilight. It is the state in which you are neither sleeping nor awake, yet you are aware. You are aware that you are only twilighting. Then poof, I was out of my body again. I found myself sitting in a chair as sturdy as any on the planet. It appeared to be floating in mid-air above what appeared to be hell, just as it had previously. The flames were getting closer, and I could see them lashing out at me. Satan was cursing me and reminded me of all I had done wrong and what a moron I was to expect to be saved. And he pressed his face against mine, accusing me viciously and relentlessly. I was so terrified of the truth of what he was saying that I didn't know what to do. I was powerless to defend myself. I was to blame. I was a sinner, and not a minor one at that. My mind scrambled for ideas. I couldn't say anything. My hands sagged at my sides. Then, like a flash of light, one solitary notion struck me. That was a recollection from when I was three years old, and my mother taught me to fold my hands in prayer. That's what I'll do, I reasoned. I'll just pray with my hands together. Satan stepped back as I began to raise my hands, as if I had shocked him in some way. Suddenly, at the same time, I felt an unseen force pushing my hands apart. It appeared as if Satan did not want my hands to join in prayer. I had not anticipated how moved he would be by the simple concept of someone deciding to pray. My hands were being pushed apart by an extremely intense force. Because it felt like a war for my life, I focused everything I had to simply putting my hands together. I noticed myself breaking out in a cold sweat. This was interesting in and of itself because I was out of my body. I pushed and pushed in desperation, and my hands slowly went near each other, and the closer they got, the more frantic Satan's face became. My two hands finally got near enough for just my middle fingers to connect after a long struggle. I felt so completely depleted of energy the moment they touched that I cried out in a voice that seemed to fill the universe, Oh God! That was my third time out of my body, and I exclaimed, Oh God! When I yelled out, Satan, the chair, the flames, and the entire chamber rushed forward and away from me like the Starship Enterprise shifting from pulse drive to warp 10. I heard a strange, high-pitched, screeching, zipping sound as it moved. I paused, suspended in a void for a split second, and then I noticed something in the distance approaching me. There was another unusual sound, a low-pitched, humming sound. At the time, it appeared that this scene was approaching me, but I've since realized that perhaps I was the one journeying to it. Well, there was a flesh-and-bone person in front of me. Before I could say anything, I heard my own voice say, It's really you. I was encircled by God's glory, and there on a very enormous pure white boulder sat Jesus Christ. My focus shifted to him, at first noting the minor details. I realized he was barefooted, then my attention, going clockwise, observed his robe and how absolutely amazingly white it was. There are no words to express how white it was. In comparison, everything on earth is just unattractive hues of gray. My gaze was drawn to his shoulders when I noticed his hair the color of ripe black olives, just brushing the tops of his shoulders. I was enjoying in the brilliance of his robe again as I approached waist level. Eventually it was up to his cheek. He was looking to the side, his right side turned toward me. His cheeks were gaunt, and he appeared to have not eaten in a long time. He was a plain-looking person by our standards, 
but what I observed at this point confused me. He didn't have a beard, as I had assumed, and he had these prominent pockmarks on his cheeks, as if his face had been damaged by a severe attack of acne. That perplexed me greatly. My gaze then went up his face, where I met him eye to eye. There are no words to describe what I witnessed. His eyes were like flames of black fire, and it was as if I were seeing into another universe within him, a cosmos without limitations, infinite in size, and made of the pure substance of love. I was gazing into an infinite world of pure love. What happened next felt like I was carrying a dynamite case that exploded in my hands. The power I saw in his eyes blew me backwards with such force that I thought I was being propelled across the entire cosmos, and maybe I was. I could see a ceiling about an inch in front of my face as I slowed down. I was flying towards the ceiling in my apartment again, and I could see my body on the couch below me. Eventually, like one of those gently falling dandelion seed puffs, I began to float downhill toward my body. I could feel my body grasping hold of me as I entered my body, this time through my chest. It felt like two huge, nasty claws appeared from both sides and snatched me with a bang. That was a horrible sensation, having just returned from the majesty of Jesus to that unglorified lump of sin-racked flesh we name our bodies. I was aware of what I had witnessed. I knew. I knew. I knew I had just been face to face with Jesus Christ himself. But there was a hitch. I'd never heard of this happening to anyone else before. I wondered if I was the only one in the entire world who felt this way. I have no idea what to do with this. I wasn't sure if I should tell anyone or not. I decided that I had to find out. Therefore, only moments after returning, this was my first prayer. Lord, if this has happened to anyone else, please show me and direct me to them to confirm what I have just experienced, I pleaded. God then presented to me about sixty more persons who had experienced comparable experiences over the next three weeks. It was around three and a half months later that the perplexing question of why Jesus didn't have a beard when I saw him was explained for me. In fact, because he didn't have a beard, it had become a pressing question in my mind whether I had seen the real Jesus or not. But then, one lovely day, while reading my Bible, I came across a prophecy that stated that when he was taken before Pilate, as well as at the crucifixion, he would be mistreated and beaten, and they would also rip his beard out by the handfuls. That explains everything. I'd seen the genuine Jesus, and the scars and pockmarks were where the roots had ripped out his beard. Jesus' face may have been emaciated, scarred, and unappealing, but I can declare from personal experience that if heaven had nothing else to give, just sitting and staring into his eyes for all eternity would be enough. As previously stated, I really wanted the confirmation of others, and I met several people who informed me of their own encounters with Jesus. One of the first was my mother who had not informed anyone about the story in almost fifty years. Her mother cautioned her not to do it again. When she mentioned her experience, I still hadn't spoken anything to her about my own. We were having dinner together when she glanced across the table at me and said, I feel inspired to tell you about an encounter with Jesus that I have only told one else about since it happened. And she said Jesus looked exactly like I remembered him. Confirmations like these with a variety of people continued for several months. One of the most bizarre experiences I had occurred while working the night shift at a 7, 11. A very attractive man walked into the store, approached me, and simply said, Aren't his eyes the most wonderful thing? He then stood there smiling at me. Absolutely, I said. With a smile on his face, he blessed me and walked out the door without purchasing anything. I can't help but think he was an angel.